Western Dundee, which is in the hymnal. And then I'm going to ask you to join and sing, do a little singing with us for the last part of the gathering. So I'm going to invite you to help tune your breath, tune your body, tune this room with the sound Aum, Aum, Aum. We're just going to chant for a few moments and get that breath going. Those of you who have taken yoga classes may have experienced chanting Aum, or if you attend singing meditations, you might sing Aum. And this is part of the Hindu tradition which has spread worldwide through the practice of yoga, which does not necessarily mean you are practicing Hinduism. The various elements of these practices have been taught in secular ways as well. So I'm going to ask Nisha for a note. So just sing Om on a single breath. Let it resonate. When you need another breath, take a breath, come in. And then I'm going to layer some things in on top of it, so be ready for that. Just keep it coming. Take a breath and come back in. teach this side of the room part of a chant. Your words are loka samasta, and there's a clap that goes with it. So keep singing om, om. So I'll sing it first, you echo. Loka samasta. Loka samasta. Suki no bhavan tu. Suki no bhavan tu. Suki no bhavan tu. Suki no bhavan tu. Suki no bhavantu. 
Sukinova. You right in the middle with me sing. Om Shanti 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 Om. Om Shanti 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 Om. Om Shanti 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 Suki no bavantu. Suki no bavantu. Suki no bavantu. rise and body your spirit for the call to worship. We gather together to let our hearts break their silence, to create a place big enough to hold our joy, our hope, our fear, our sorrow. We gather together to build a sanctuary in our souls, stained glass, vaulted ceilings, and an honored place for every holy name. We gather together to feel spirit stirring in our hands and to offer it to one another. Come, let us worship together. Your gray hymnal and open to number 197 in singing the living tradition, you'll find another piece by Rabindranath Tagore, this one, he wrote both the melody and the words, and then they were set to a harmony by a member of the UU Musicians Network many years ago for our hymnal. This is, there are numerous strings in your lute. Let me add my own among them. And every time we sing that refrain, we'll sing it twice through. And then the verses are kind of stacked up at the bottom of the first page and into the second page. We'll always sing the chorus two times in between. There are numerous strings in your lute.
Please be seated. Good morning. I'm your worship leader, Kristen Satterley, and I'm so glad to welcome everyone to First Unitarian. If this is your first time here, or you've been part of this congregation for years, whether you're in the sanctuary or the family room or social hall, each one of you is important and loved and welcome. Take a moment just to sense this wondrous congregation. Notice the people near you on this campus or far away. It is good to be together. And it is also good to remember that every one of us, young and old, is a human being. We are glad you have joined us, so we want the real you to be with us today. And of course, the real you moves and breathes and laughs, maybe takes notes or dances in your seat. Do those things. We want you to do those things. Our bodies and our devices make little noises and move around, and that is just fine. Families with small folks, we've got a playground down here if you want a close-up view of the action and a soft rug to play on. There's also an activity table in the back and a family room across the hall. Wherever you want to be, we are happy you are here with us today. Welcome to all on this beautiful, very warm morning. Come, let us worship together. Good morning. I get to tell you a story this morning. This story starts with a holiday in India, one that celebrates the end of the rains. People are gathered on the steps and under the shade of a banyan tree to hear Lakshmi, the storyteller, speak. Lakshmi says, because we revere Mother Nature and she has once again freely given us the rains we need to grow crops. Let us celebrate her, she who provides. Lakshmi gazes up at the banyan tree shading them all. For this story, it's important that you understand how grand the banyan tree is. She admires the branches and roots spreading so widely that 20 elephants could shade themselves beneath it. She decides to tell the people the story of the miracle of the banyan tree. I will tell you the story she told the people. Many centuries ago, a wise man named Adulaka wanted to teach his son a lesson about one's true nature. One day in late summer, when the banyan tree's red fruit ripened, he said to his son, Sataketu, go and pick a single fruit from our tree and bring it back here. Yes, father, replied the boy. <clears throat> because the banyan was ancient, many of its roots draped from branch to ground like bridges of rope. Sataketu eyed the tree and tucked the long folds of his white jyoti the unstitched cotton cloth worn by men and boys around his waist. Now he could climb. He hopped on one of the many banyan roots to a branch, shimmied up the trunk, and searched among the big heart-shaped leaves 
for the small fruit. He found a cluster, but chose only one fruit, as his father had asked. Stowing it into a pleat in his jouti, his body, his, the boy, sorry, slid down the smooth bark and ran back with his small piece of fruit in, the hand, in his hand. Adulaka did not take the fruit from the boy, but gestured for him to hold on to it. Break it open, son, and tell me what you find inside. The boy did as he was told, squashing the fruit between thumb and forefinger. That makes me think it was a pretty small fruit, actually, for the giant tree. The remains spread in his palm. Svetakatu fingered through them. I see some tiny seeds, father. Well then, break one of those seeds open and tell me what you see inside that, said his father. Looking from that task proved difficult, the boy pressed a small hard seed between two fingernails until it crushed into a speck on his fingertip. Svetaketu frowned and studied it, bewildered. Nothing at all, father. There is nothing left. Looking it from his son's hand to the towering tree, the sage said, yes, son. It seems like nothing at all, doesn't it? But from that tiny seed, a giant tree grows. He paused so that they could appreciate the fact and listen to the birds clustered on the tree's topmost heights. That nothing on your finger is the real Svetakatu, said the father, what we call Brahman, God, the invisible one, at once everywhere and in everything, the unseen behind the stars glimmering, the banyan trees stretching toward light and the birds singing. Brahman is the real. You are that too, my son. Won't you all take a moment to take a deep breath and sigh? I'll do it with you. <sighs> Svetaketu contemplated the words from his father, and he took a deep breath and sighed. He was a young boy, and some things he knew would take time to understand. The sage looked at his son's puzzled face, chuckled, and took his hand. When we try to locate God exactly, inside a seed, or even inside of us, it can't be grasped or held. It is beyond form, said Adulaka. Within you, that spark of Brahman is the very one peering out through your eyes. When the story is over, there is quiet among all the people that are there. A young girl asks the storyteller, if Brahman is so small, is Brahman so small that we can't see it or so big we can't see it? Lakshmi smiles at the girl and said, yes, just like that. <laughs> What a perfect start to our meditation time. Brahman peering out from within us. How holy were you already born? So I invite you now to take another breath with me. And on your next exhalation, see if you can let your shoulders fall a little bit. Let that seat hold you.
notice what it's like to be in this sacred space with so many others. All the little people sounds, papers, breathing, little voices. As we continue in meditation, when your mind wanders, just gently bring it back and let any noises you hear also call you right into this moment, like meditation chimes. Let's lift up some names in our community. Who's in your heart this morning? What people, what places? 
I invite you to call them to mind. And as the chime rings, speak them aloud so that we can hold them with you. To these, I add the name of Maria Zuschlag, a member of our congregation who we just learned died in June. And we lift up her son, Ted, who's also a member here. May light perpetual shine upon Maria, and may Ted and all of their family be comforted. All these we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal and celebration, called by many names. I'm going to share with you a prayer that I wrote many years ago. Will you join me in a spirit of prayer? Nameless one, how shall we address you? You who are without form and yet are everywhere and are everything. We call you spirit, spirit of life, fuente de amor, ground of being, love. We call you nothing, we call you mystery, we call you mover, source of peace. We speak to you in metaphor. We speak, we are made for language, for connection, and so we say you, but this is only another approximate guess. How shall we address you? And how shall we look upon you? We whose hearts long to know you, who were made to be filled with awe and to look for you, but it is like looking into the sun, and you are known by inference. In story, you cast your shadow forms, in music, you flow over us like a shelter of peace. Standing before you in search of words, presenting ourselves before you in search of words, we bring all that we have for your name and all that we have within us to lay at your feet. Beauty and curiosity, anger, fear, and confusion. When we've laid it all out and we have come to the place of silence, Receive, O oh Holy One, our gratitude for the light and air, for the wild places in the world and in us, for the conversation, for the pause, for being. Amen. And peace be with you. At the beginning of the service, I had you chanting some phrases in Sanskrit. Loka, samasta, sukino, bhavantu. This is one of the heart teachings. The translation is, may all beings everywhere be happy and free, and may the thoughts, words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for all. Our Come As You Are choir is now going to sing a different setting. You sang the chant version of it, one of, one of the many versions. And we're going to sing another version that was arranged by a, a famous kirtan singer, Deva Premal and Miten. That's actually two, two singers. Kirtan is a form of devotional singing where people gather in groups and they'll sing the same phrases over and over and over. We're going to sing ours three times through. And it finishes each time with Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Peace, peace, peace to the entire universe.
to join us. Om Shanti. Thank you for joining our Come As You Are Choir this morning. I have the whole room in the choir. See how easy it is to join the choir? <laughs> they have a special snack table between the services, too. I'm just saying anyone can come as you are for the Come As You Are Choir. <laughs> there are numerous strings in your lutes. Our hymn this morning was, as Susan said, by Rabindranath Tagore. He was a Bengali poet, writer, playwright, composer, philosopher, social reformer, and painter, born in the 1800s. And his words appear many times in our hymnal. And I invite you to turn to reading number 519 with me right now, 519, for another example. Let's read this together. I'll read the plain font and you respond with the italics. Let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain. Let me not look for allies in life's battlefield. Let me not crave in anxious fear to be saved. Grant me that I may not be a coward, feeling your mercy in my success alone. And I invite you to just look at what else is on those two pages that are right in front of you alongside this reading. Tewa words ancient Greek words, an excerpt from the Christian Gospels, a prayer from India, and a pagan prayer from Starhawk. So very eclectic for a hymnal in a church. <laughs> Turn with me now to hymn number one at the front of the book. And then turn to the page right before that one. It doesn't have a number on it. Here we find the UU principles at the top, and here there are seven listed. This book was printed before anybody was really considering the eighth principle, but we've now adopted an eighth principle along with hundreds of other congregations. And below the, the principles there, you see that it says the living tradition we share draws from many sources, and it lists them. Direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder, words and deeds of prophetic people, 
wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life. And this explains the eclectic hymnal. Jewish and Christian teachings, humanist teachings, and spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions, which celebrate the sacred circle of life. Okay, you can put your hymnals away now if you'd like. That third source, Wisdom from the World's Religions, is one that Unitarian Universalism has grown in relationship with over the generations. And it goes way back to the early 1800s at least. I've often received requests to bring more from other traditions into our Sunday services. And this makes sense because we believe that there's more than one path to truth or to the divine. And yet, incorporating other traditions as outsiders can be cringy, even if we mean well. So even if we're starting from this place of spiritual humility that honors wisdom from other places, it can end up, we can get into trouble with it. One of the things that can happen is we're likely to take things out of context, interpreting them through our own cultural lens, which we might not even realize we are seeing through because it just seems so normal to us to think in the ways we do. Or we may ignore larger contexts of colonization that make that kind of borrowing feel like more of the same old cultural raiding and theft. So we have to be very careful. I've studied Buddhism formally and informally for many years now, and I've had Buddhist mentors whose teachings have shaped my ministry. I've done a deep dive into Judaism, taking classes at a synagogue and at a queer yeshiva, or a learning community, and practicing Judaism at home with my Jewish partner. And isn't it wonderful that you use, including their ministers, can live such interfaith lives? So I have experience and relationship, and I have context in those traditions, but it's not possible to do that with every tradition. How do we honor the wisdom of world religions respectfully? One good approach is to include the voices of people from those traditions. We have three guest speakers lined up this summer to help with that. Imam Abdur Rauf Campos Marchetti, Rabbi Celia Sorget, and Native American musician and preacher Randy Granger will be here. And our interfaith relationships with each of them go beyond just this guest speaking. We share a campus with Minara Muslim community. And back in the 1950s, when First Unitarian was a brand new congregation just getting started, we used space at Congregation Albert's synagogue. And we have partnered with them in different ways for over 70 years now. And we've known Randy Granger, not for 70 years, but for several years. <laughs> While there are Hindu people in my life, I don't happen to have a relationship with a representative of Hinduism who would be available to speak about that tradition in a Sunday morning Protestant church service, which is a special kind of ask. So instead, I am drawing from two sources this morning. One is my memory of an Eastern philosophy class that I took back in college from a Hindu teacher. And the other is the book Katha Sagar, Ocean of Stories, written by Sarah Conover and Abhi Janamanchi. Abhi was born and raised in South India. He is a third generation member of a liberal Hindu reform movement with ties to Unitarian Universalism. And he is also one of my colleagues. Abhi is the senior minister of Cedar Lane Unitarian Universalist Church in Bethesda, Maryland. And he and Sarah created this book for non-Hindus to learn about, to learn about and to experience Hinduism through stories. The story that Mia told this morning is from Katha Sagar. What we call Hinduism refers to a big variety of stories, teachings, native religious beliefs, and customs that have developed in India over thousands of years. Foreign colonial powers, seeing religion through their Western cultural lens, grouped it all together as a religion, Hinduism. 
a couple of weeks ago in that sermon called What is Religion? I talked about how people from the Western worldview, a Eurocentric worldview, tend to want to define religion narrowly, especially in terms of a set of beliefs. And Hinduism is one of many traditions that just doesn't fit very neatly into that kind of a box. Instead, Hindus have religious systems called Sanatan Dharma, which means eternal truth or eternal path. Those systems include myths and stories that are thousands of years old. And Hinduism doesn't have a founder like Buddhism does. Buddhism reveres who? The Buddha, right? Or Christianity, which reveres Jesus. Or Islam, which reveres Muhammad, right? No central uh, founding figure in Hinduism. And there's also no central religious authority like a pope or something like that. And there's no particular creed in Hinduism. There are many sacred texts. There is not one certain special sacred text, but many. And they include some of the oldest and most beautiful stories humankind knows. There are some common beliefs among the diverse branches of Hinduism. One is that the cosmos and everything contained in the cosmos goes through cycles of birth, death, and rebirth, and that each person will experience the consequences of their actions. Good deeds lead to good karma. Bad deeds lead to bad karma. Another common belief is that there is an all-pervading, all-sustaining ultimate reality known as Brahman, the source of all. Hindu scriptures describe Brahman as having fundamental qualities of truth, awareness, and joy. Branches of Hinduism also commonly believe that every being, including you and me, it contain an innermost essence that is identical with Brahman. We heard about that a bit in the story this morning. That's the ultimate reality within us. And in the story, it was described as peering out. Right? And that's called Atman. Ultimate reality out there, Brahman. Ultimate reality in here, Atman. Same essence, though. But while Brahman is this all-encompassing reality, Hinduism also famously has many deities. In fact, it's said that there are as many as 33 million of them because they are actually just innumerable. You cannot count them. <laughs> Some of them are well-known in the West, like Ganesha with his elephant head. There's a picture of Ganesha on the cover of your order of service this morning. Another one is Mother Kali with her terrifying expression and her macabre necklace that's made out of cabezas, <laughs> multi-generational space. But there are really so many more too, and they come in male and female forms, or as simultaneously male and female, as with the deity called Ardhanariswara. And meanwhile, Brahman is genderless. The deities might take the form of children, or non-human animals. Some are known throughout Hinduism and others are very local, known only to relatively few worshipers, which is one of the reasons why they're innumerable, can't be counted. People ascribe qualities to each deity like selflessness, courage, purity, or abundance. The thing is that Brahman, the ultimate truth, is hard for a human to wrap their head around. And deities give a person something to focus on. And Hindus are free to worship God, Brahman, in whatever form helps them to focus their devotion and love. The authors of Katha Sagar compare these idols, these deities, to flags. Hindus see idols as physical representations that help them focus and pray, just like a flag might focus a soldier's courage and patriotism. Because of all the deities, Hinduism is sometimes called polytheistic. Because of Brahman being the all-encompassing truth, it's sometimes called monotheistic. You could also consider it henotheistic. Henotheism is worshiping one god while allowing that there may also be others that are true. <laughs> so which one is it? Hinduism does not try to solve that question, <laughs> so we probably are not going to solve it either. 
to get to know Hinduism, we have to do more than talk about it, though, because, as I said, it's so much more than a bunch of ideas or facts. It's a way of life. It's culture, customs, scent, colors, sound, and stories. The stories are meant to be experiences in and of themselves. In Katha Sagar, between each story is the story of the storyteller telling the story. So it places the listener in context. This storyteller is Lakshmi, named after the goddess of prosperity. In one chapter, she's preparing for the traditional festival honoring the goddess Lakshmi. She's making a list of ingredients for traditional sweets, and she's planning to get new clothes for the special occasion. One of her traditions is to make butter with her granddaughter, Lalitha, which is then clarified into ghee, a traditional ingredient in Indian cooking. It takes a long time to churn milk into butter and then ghee, but the time is made special by getting to spend it with her granddaughter. Lakshmi and Lalitha sit at the churning pot, which has a paddle in it that's attached to a spindle. And the spindle, in turn, is controlled by a rope wrapped around it with two handles that are pulled side to side. So you tug on the two ends of the rope, and it moves the spindle, and it moves the paddle in the churning pot. As they begin to tug and churn the butter, Lakshmi tells Lalitha a story. It's one of the most popular stories in Hindu mythology. As you listen, notice what it evokes in your imagination, what textures, senses, emotions. In what ways is it like the human experience? In what ways is it like your experience? So here we go. At the center of the universe, in the center of the cosmic ocean, the ocean of milk, there is a majestic mountain peak. Mount Meru stretches for thousands and thousands of miles and it shines. This mountain shines brighter than the sun. Its boulders are made of precious metals and jewels. It's covered from top to bottom and on all of the sides with lush trees and herbs and flowers and birds singing and creatures roaring strong and healthy. It is a fountain of life. And there's something else about it. There's something about it that caught the attention of the gods and of the asuras, power-seeking beings that compete with the gods. Asura is often translated as demon, but they're not always wicked, these Asuras. So what caught the attention of the Asuras and the gods? Nothing on Mount Meru ever decayed or died. The gods and the Asuras did not have immortality, and they wanted it. So getting together on a plateau of Mount Meru, they came up with a plan. They would churn the ocean of milk until the hidden nectar of immortality arose from it like butter. They would need something very large to use as a churning stick. How about another mountain? And together they attempted to uproot one from the earth, Mount Mandara. Indra aimed thunderbolts at it, but it just caused minor earthquakes. The god of wind, Vaya, blew with all his force, but the mountain still didn't move. One by one, the gods and the Asuras tried, but failed. They were about to lose hope when Lord Vishnu's mighty eagle, Varuda, grabbed the mountain with both claws, and with a great roar, the mountain was at last uprooted. Now they placed it in the ocean of milk. The mountain would be the churning paddle, and the thousand-hooded serpent, Sesha, would be the cord. Sesha wrapped around the mountain. The Asuras grabbed Sesha's head. The gods grabbed the tail. And now they pulled back and forth, churning and churning the great cosmic ocean, the ocean of milk. 
After a long and wearying time, great treasures began to arise from the deep. First, Kamadenu, the sacred cow that grants all wishes. Then, Indra's mount, the great elephant, Aravada. But soon something else emerged, a deadly poison. The gods and asuras began to choke on it, but thankfully, Lord Shiva, god of destruction, drank it. He drank it, protecting the universe. Next, the moon arose from the ocean with its gentle, milky light. And then the goddess of purity and abundance, Lakshmi herself, emerged, reborn right in that moment. Her radiance blessed and overwhelmed everyone who was present. Still, they wanted immortality, and they churned and churned. Finally, the position of the gods emerged, holding one golden pot of the nectar. And what do you think happened? The Asuras dove for it right away. But as they grabbed it, Vishnu, who was all-knowing, saw that if creatures such as the Asuras gained immortality, it would be catastrophic for the cosmos. So Vishnu, transforming himself into a beautiful enchantress, distracted them, bewitching their minds with desire, such that when he extended his hand, they willingly placed the pot in it. Vishnu passed the nectar to all the gods who drank it up, leaving none for the Asuras. When the Asuras realized that they had been tricked, they were furious, and a great battle ensued. Even if I were to tell you the variety and number of weapons that flew through the air and how they scorched the land, you would not hardly begin to imagine it. Thankfully, the gods won at least for now. Immortal at last, the gods put Mount Mandara back in its place and they transformed themselves into rain clouds to restore life on the land. They had won immortality, and perhaps more importantly, the rebirth of the goddess Lakshmi, who ensures that one season follows another and the earth feeds us again and again. Abhi Janamanji and Sarah Conover say that the spiritual aspects of this ancient myth can be interpreted in many ways. It's sometimes used to teach meditation. In the version told here, the thousand-hooded serpent Sesha symbolizes desire. The human mind without desire is like a calm ocean. But the invasion of desire churns our thoughts and causes storms and waves. The powers and beings that emerge from the ocean are like the emotions and the spiritual powers a person gains as they develop spirituality, which should be used to help others. And they write, the fact that poison also arises in the churning shows that we must work to integrate both positive and negative parts of ourselves in pursuing enlightenment. And the participation of both gods and asuras signifies the need to harmonize both of these aspects of our personality through spiritual practice. Spiritual progress leads to spiritual health, enlightenment, and abundance, as symbolized by Lakshmi, they write. Lots to consider. In this, our first of our summer sermon series on world religions. May our consideration of them contribute to our spiritual progress and also to a greater understanding of our fellow people. We gather together to feel spirit stirring in our hands and to offer it to one another. And that shared spirit inspires us to give to the larger community as well. Our Change for the Future partner this month is Libros for Kids. Libros mails a free book every month to kids in Bernalillo and Valencia counties from birth to age five. That means that each child receives a library of 60 books, including 12 bilingual titles. From a seed too small to see, 
your pocket change comes a tree too large to comprehend. This is faith. You can earmark your donation for Libros for Kids by using the envelope on the back of the chair, writing CFF on it. Offerings that are not change and not directed in this way go to support the work of the church. Regardless of where you direct your offering, your generosity sustains this beloved community and its compassionate values. We will now gratefully receive the offering. In almost every religion, you will come across teachings of wisdom, ethics, how to live our lives. Some of you may have heard of Dharma teachings. You may have gotten that from your yoga teacher or from another, another uh, Hindu source. But also Unitarians do the same thing. So our Come As You Are choir is going to sing number 1054 in the turquoise hymnal, if you'd like to join us. This is a piece by Jim Scott, a UU composer. Let this be a house of peace. generosity. Thank you on behalf of the congregation and on behalf of our Change for the Future partner. And thank you ushers for your help today. We've got a couple of invitations to share with you. 
our community does not end when our service does. You are all invited to a social hour in the social hall afterwards. There will be chat tables there for specifically talking about the service or um, if you are just talking more casually or throughout your day. We have a question for you to consider. What resonated with you most in the service today and what are you still wondering about? We also have an invitation from Mia, our Director of Religious Education. Uh, the, she mentions that the Religious Education Summer Classes for Kids have started. They happen at 10 o'clock in the morning, so in between the two services um, in the RE building in Room 4, and adults are invited to join. You're invited to go back for stories, talk, an activity, a play, and just multi-generational connection. Uh, and you can sign yourself in at the welcome table and just go down the hallway to find them if you do. And she also mentions that parent coffees have returned as well. And those are at the same time, right, Mia, at 10? Yeah, so while kids are in the RE program, parents can gather for coffee. And that's in Memorial Hall? Yes, Memorial Hall. All right. Well, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit, and let's greet one another with a gesture of peace. We like to do it with one hand over our hearts, extending the other one toward each other. Peace. Peace. Grab that gray hymnal one more time and open to number 179. Did I get the right number? One foot. Sorry, 159. This is my song with a beautiful melody by Sedalius and a plea for peace for peoples all around the world, every person. This is my song. 